Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Hi, folks. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us here. Getting it right with Rick Wagner on the old Rick Wagner Show here in Kansas City, KGLN. We appreciate your listenership and uh, your thoughtful consideration of what we have to say. We, I mean me at this point, and some of our guests from time to time. But, you know, I was just sitting here at the studio, and I just found something while... Uh, I was getting ready here and listening to the opener, and I found a, uh, let's see, is a critical defense uh, double-aught buckshot 12-gauge round just sitting in here in a, on the floor in a box. I don't remember having it here before. I must have felt like I needed some protection for some reason. I don't think the, the shell itself is going to do me much unless I throw it at somebody. It is pretty heavy. Anyway, it just shows you my, my state of mind at some point that, uh, I felt like I needed something in here, you know. What can I say? We're all in a crazy time. And we may make light of it, but a lot of it is dead serious. Like, here's one thing that is funny to me, but has a serious side to it. Uh, I had an argument this week with, uh, an AI. That's right. <laughs> I got into a uh, discussion, I like to think of a discussion, with a large language mod, uh, model, specifically BARD. Now, BARD is the AI that is powered by Google. And BARD is not the best of the bunch. No, it's not. Uh, the ChatGPT OpenAI model is still the best across the board, there's two or three others that are pretty good. And I may have mentioned in the past that because I'm interested in this kind of thing, that I I took a class and got certified in prompt engineering and a few things like that because I thought and still believe that it could be very helpful, not only in some of the other interests that I have out there and scanning around for historical precedents to talk to you guys about and so forth, but also in my law practice because I'm able with some of the modifications that I've put in, in place on this uh, platform that I pay a little bit for, to be able to analyze certain things in cases and diagnostics and all this sort of thing in a way that you really can't do in any kind of timely fashion yourself. But I've got the AI configured in such a way that I can ask it some questions and it can direct me to places and I can find it much faster. Now, you don't want to use it just to get answers because it's quite capable of hallucinating, as they say. And hallucinating is an interesting way to say what the AI is doing. What it's mainly doing is the prompt that you put into it, what you're asking it to do. It doesn't fully understand the parameters of it, and it wants to help and provide an answer, so it scours around and tries to find bits and pieces of something that appears to be an answer to the question that you want. And then when you ask it to give it a backlink or where it got the information, it'll put one up. And unless you're an idiot, 
you'll follow that and see if it's real. I don't use it for things like that. I use it more for, you know, looking for definitions of things, understanding how procedures work, looking for technical things about cases that I have, trying to utilize it in a way that really brings the uh, 21st century into my personal injury practice, right? We sort of have an, an approach here that, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's not schizophrenic, it's uh, sort of bifurcated, is that I strongly believe in old-fashioned work, earning clients by doing superlative work with them, and then getting most of our work from referrals, which you folks out there have been very good about. But I also believe that I, I want to have cutting-edge technology and knowledge bases on our side to put us steps ahead of people that just want to continue to do the same old thing and churn it out. So I like that combination. And I, I've always been kind of a tech geek anyway. I'm not particularly you know, skilled at any of the base programming or anything like that, but I have a decent working knowledge of how some of this goes, and a couple of classes I've taken have helped me out. Don't be afraid of the AI. It's going to come into our lives anyway. Understanding it a little bit is, I think, the most important thing. It is what is created by the programmers. This is what you have to sort of keep your eye on. Now, the argument that I got in with Bard today was when I ask it a question for the show, I thought I'd just try Bard out here. Ask it a question about communist China. And it gave me an oddball answer that when I queried it, it said that, well, you know, China's not monolithic, and my base programming says that we don't want to uh, essentially show that there's just one monolithic approach to world affairs from China, and they have a long history. It's very wokey sounding, right? So I mentioned that to it to see how it respond. And we got sort of a back and forth that told me a lot about its programming. And it is much more woke, if you want to say that, than a couple of the other AI models out there, which doesn't surprise me because Google is that way. Right? And so what I was asking the AI was how it could determine if its own answers were overtly and or unduly shaded by the preferences, beliefs, and politics of its original programmers and the people that are still tweaking it as it goes along. The AI admitted that that was what was going on. And I actually called it out. <laughs> this sounds so strange, doesn't it? I said, do you think that the fact that Google is so heavily invested and seems to work tightly with China, and we know that's true, at least what we read and, and search engine stuff and so forth, and that that would influence your programming, that is the AI's, and responses about China. And it had an interesting, well, those are two separate things. I mean, it sounded like you were talking to a person. Those are two separate, these are kept far apart. And of course that's not true. They are going to make sure in that situation that the AI doesn't, of course, say anything of, you know, that's offensive or this or that. And of course, defining what offensive is. And this is something that I thought about. And I even asked the AI, I mean, who's the judge? I mean, None of this artificial intelligence is objective. Some of it's more objective than others. And you can find out by asking it questions about things that there is definite political 
subtones to it and see how it answers. And then ask why it answered that. So that's what I was doing. It was, it was pretty interesting. Like I said, it was kind of an argument. I don't know if I want it or not. I'd like to think we had sort of a stalemate there. Yeah. But it told me a lot about how Google is approaching the base programming of this thing. And they're not going to let these AIs look at things in an objective manner. Because frankly, you could turn some of these loose with some parameters so they don't just don't go everywhere on a variety of socioeconomic events that have going on right now and in the past, look at the common factors and say, okay, how did this work out? Now, in real life, when you try and look at past events, especially cultural, socioeconomic stuff, you really get a lot of bias from the person telling the story. I mean, you get it in ancient history. So I suggest that just like with humans, that by looking at a number of different versions of the same event from different perspectives, different authors, and so forth, that you can sort of get a median, right? You can sort of figure out which of the two ends there are terribly biased and kind of get a better idea about it. But to do that, you have to be able to look at all of it. This is the problem with a lot of the AI programming. They're not allowed to look at all of it. Because, after all, some of these people, there is only one answer. There's only one side, as far as they're concerned. So that bias creeps into it. So it was very interesting to uh, prod around on that. And we should embrace it to some extent and understand it so that we can protect ourselves from problems that might arise from it. That's just my idea, anyway. We'll be back. Oh, that's right, friends. I'm back. I am, of course, a knight without armor. In a savage land. Yeah, it's a very, very romanticized way of thinking about myself. I know we got off in the first segment there talking a little about artificial intelligence, but it's become so prevalent, I think we need to kind of consider ways to look at it. If we just ignore it, it's not going to do us any good because it's going to be in our lives whether we like it or not. And if you understand a little bit about it, and you don't have to really be geeky about it or, or nerd out on it to do it, just understand how it operates a little bit. It can be very helpful to you, and also you know where to be worried about it. And, of course, one of the things you want to worry about AI is to have it turned loose on the Internet in terms of website moderation, comment moderation, and good Lord, what if they turn it loose on your emails, right? They can tell you, well, no one's going to be looking at your emails. Well, already there's scanning done of your emails to get ideas about you know preferences and things that are useful in advertising and all that kind of thing. Now, it's not done necessarily by humans, but it exists out there. Some of that metadata is used, too. I mean, people out there who think that they get something for free just don't seem to get, get what's going on. There's a product there, and they're trading you for the product. In other words, they're purchasing the product by letting you utilize the things that they offer, the free email, the Facebook page, the Instagram account, all that stuff. But the product they're purchasing is you. What you do on the Internet, what you think about things, what you say, they harvest that data and use that to sell to others. And that's why they have these giant buildings 
and so many people are billionaires in Silicon Valley because it's very valuable information, particularly when you put it all together and it gives you trend analysis and so forth. Google especially is obscure, I think is the, is the least thing I could say about what they're doing. When you try and look into what they do with advertising and how they come up with some of the ideas, where ad placement is going to be, what's a good ad, what's, you know, the kind of mechanical stuff, very quickly you run into a brick wall. Brick wall is they're not going to tell you how they make these decisions. It's a black box. At some point you put stuff in, it gives you an answer about something. This is where you should print ads. This is what we should look this, you know. Whatever the case may be, you don't really know how it's going on. You can guess. And that's when you, when you hire people to assist in like advertising and things like that on the internet. They have a little better idea about how it operates, but not a lot. Most of their knowledge comes from seeing the outcomes. You know, in other words, you put this in, it churns around in the black box and it comes out this way. If you see enough of it, you get an idea of how the black box is chewing up whatever you put in it. And Google and some of the others as well change that way that they rearrange the data and use it from time to time by changing the algorithms. In other words, the questions and answers, the branching that it uses in the data. It, it's, it's complicated and then yet at its base, it's not really. You have to realize that if you want to utilize this stuff, and it seems ubiquitous now, right? You're selling your information to some extent to use it for free. So if you want something that really is going to be private, you're probably going to have to pay for it. Uh, a lot of people use Proton Mail. It's an email, a small fee, and it doesn't use any of your data. It's actually end-to-end, and it's not reading anything or getting extractions of metadata and so forth out of it. At least that's my understanding. You know, I'm not an expert there. But you should know that if you want to use things and have some degree of autonomy over what you have out there, you're probably going to have to give them a little bit of money. Otherwise, how do you think they're paying to let you use it? It's When you stop and think about it, it's pretty simple. Speaking of simple, uh, we have a lot of simple-minded people in government, don't we? Yeah, And we have, apparently, uh, a lot of simple-minded people in government that uh, are running things in a way we don't like, and we don't seem to be able to, able to do anything about it. Now, things are, you know, not great for us, but people out there who are really, say, champions of free speech, it's getting pretty expensive. And by that, I mean Elon Musk. Several of you out there that I've talked to had read the, the story about Elon Musk and his salary and what a court in Delaware did with all this stuff. But I don't know how prevalent it is with everybody else. Elon's salary with Tesla was predicated on the growth of the company. As the company grew at a certain rate, he was awarded a larger and larger salary. He had a $50 billion salary from 2018. Now, that's a tremendous amount of money, but Tesla grew a tremendous amount. Now, you can look at people like, say, oh, Bob Iger and some of these CEOs 
at some of these companies that get a pretty tremendous bonuses and everything, and their company's tanking, not growing. But some shareholders brought a suit in the state where Tesla was incorporated, which was Delaware. Lots of places have incorporated in Delaware. Delaware, as you know, is a tiny little state, and it is smaller than a lot of counties, in, certainly in Colorado or a lot of other places. And in order to attract business, they had a very friendly way of incorporation and the way that they treated companies, which is why the credit card companies ended up there. And you can just ask old Joe Biden uh, how that worked for him because it seemed to work out pretty well. So the shareholders bought a little bit of Tesla, and then they filed a complaint in court saying that the pay that Elon Musk was getting was not arrived at in the right way. He had too much influence over the board. The board members were captured maybe by him and the ideas and so forth. And so a Delaware judge threw out his salary, said that, oh no, he, he had too much, he had too much interaction with the board and it wasn't really freely came to and all this kind of stuff. 50 billion bucks. Boop. Gone. I don't know what this judge thought about this. I read some of the comments. And first thing you have to realize is Tesla is Elon Musk. <laughs> Without Elon Musk, it just isn't, isn't going to work there. And he has all these companies. He has SpaceX. He has the Boring Company. He has this uh, other company that's working on these Neuralinks, for, which sound a little dystopian, but actually the idea is to help people who have uh, had strong disabilities and so forth and utilize brain power to affect and actuate things like computers and whatnot that they can't do physically. But anyway, he has a number of things like that. They all revolve around him. If he's not there, it's really not happening. So this puts him back to, to square one. So Elon has said that he wants to reincorporate Tesla in Texas, which I say, good idea. And he can probably get with the, with the board as it is, it is created now and renegotiate a salary package from that. Who knows what it will be? But the idea of this constant attack on not even a conservative, Elon Musk isn't really a conservative. He's just pretty much a libertarian when he thinks about it. He, he mainly is just interested in free speech and not having the world go into a dumpster. I mean, right away. Because of that, he has to be hunted down, just like Donald Trump. He has to have money taken away from him, influence taken away from him, making it so he can't run his companies. He has to he has to be made into a pariah. And we've seen this with other people, too, and I've mentioned it before. David Mamet, the great playwright, and he's also a, a director of some movies, and, you know, he's he was a darling of the left. They thought he was the smartest guy they'd ever seen. He's a very intelligent man, very intelligent. And if you read some of his stuff, it's really fascinating. He wrote uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Rose. Uh, he directed Wag the Dog. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff out there. And when he decided he wasn't a liberal anymore, they went nuts. And he pretty much has to do everything himself because no one is going to work with him directly like they used to because 
Now he's come out as a conservative. So when you see this endless pounding away, and, and some of you saw also that uh, some of these leftist groups out there have said that they're going to bird dog people who are preparing for a Trump administration, people who might want to work in a Trump administration and so forth. In other words, you know, figure out where they live and all this kind of... It's horrific to have that kind of thing happen. And it's un-American. Uh, I'm not saying we haven't had things like that in America, but it, it goes against the very idea of freedom that we have. And it certainly uh, is a huge stifling effect on individual liberty. So when you see that, you really have to take a step back and say, what's going on? And most of you know what's going on. We're in a culture war. We're in an economic war. And we got to figure out how to get these Jaspers out before they ruin it. All right. Thanks, folks, for hanging on. Appreciate you listening to us and uh, staying rooted in here as we came around the corner. Rick Wagner here getting a ride on Kansas KGLN. Listen, I wanted to talk a little bit more. We were talking a lot about AI and how that works and a few things like that. I, I hope it was a little informative uh, and a little thought-provoking. It can be very helpful, or if in the wrong hands, like I say, could be a real problem. It's in the mind of the creator. I don't mean our real creator, but the ones that does the cybernetic creating. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, Frankly, I think that attempts to legislate this stuff with artificial intelligence is way too little and way too late. And we are really at a at a point where it's already out of the bag, like I said earlier. And half the people that are trying to make this legislation don't begin to understand what it is. And the people that are deeply into this artificial intelligence stuff are, like all businesses, are going to try and figure out a way that the regulation keeps other people out of their business but doesn't really interfere with their business. So that's one of the things you always have to be very careful of when you start regulating industries, particularly ones you don't really understand. Now, if you look at the average IQ in the congressional side, that is the House and the Senate, with a few notable exceptions like Josh Hawley and a few people like that, it's not a bunch of geniuses there. And then you you get the uh, Alana Presleys, the Ilian Omars, the Talibs. Those guys drag the uh, those guys drag the average down pretty low. So the idea that these people are going to be making some decisions about this is just as frightening as it being used improperly. Anyway, one of the things I wanted to bring up today, well, first let's talk a minute about these airstrikes. About 125 airstrikes, I think, with the last count in Syria and Jordan for last week's attack that killed these three brave service members that we had in their sleep, apparently. I think at Tower 22 it was called. One of the things that I had read was it seems as though that a drone, and this is, I haven't verified this, but they said that one of our drones was followed back to this camp by one of their drones, and that was what initiated the attack. Uh, I'll know more about that as time passes. It doesn't sound unreasonable the way this thing is going. Now, of course, we wait a significant period of time, and then we try this same... I don't know what to call it, the progressive way of war. They like to get us into scrapes about things, but their idea of it is, is like I've said for many years, the surgical strike. 
you know, we'll send some drones in and some drop some bombs and stuff on, on people that are highly mobile are using weaponry that for the most part is also highly mobile. It's not like they have an entrenched ICBM launching areas in there. All this stuff they can load up into the back of a pickup truck and be gone for the most part or some other way. And we give them all this time. They know we're coming. And then by the time we get there, who knows what we're doing? I heard one of the military analysts that I thought sounded like he was talking about on television uh, at the end of the week saying, you know, look, I think we're just glassing over the desert by blowing things up and uh, and some empty houses. It may not be that way. I'm certain that we're getting some casualty count out of it, and I hope there's not any or very few innocents in there. My guess is that as far as real infrastructure damage, we're not going to be doing a whole lot of it. In the first place, look at the way these guys operate. Do they really have much of an infrastructure? These are the Houthis, right? Yeah, yeah they're no. <laughs> And the most infrastructure I think we've seen in a long time are the tunnels and so forth in Gaza that Hamas has built, mainly with money from the West. But for the most part, these guys are highly mobile, and they have to be. That's the essence of guerrilla-type warfare, which is what they are, asymmetrical. They can't, you know, stay in one place and slug it out. They don't have the ability to do so. Therefore, they are on the move. Strike, go away. Strike, go away. By the way, and I may mention this before, but the term guerrilla, as it is spelled, many of you will look at it and go, that looks Spanish to me somehow. It is. That type of warfare uh, was sort of, now, let's face it, it's, it's been going on forever. I mean, in this type of insurgency or asymmetrical warfare, these new terms we have, it's been going on since the Egyptians, probably. But guerrilla was termed during the what they called the Peninsular Wars, which is the war in Spain and Portugal at the end of the 18th century against Napoleon. And uh, a lot of this was when uh, Wellington uh, was in, who later became Lord Wellington, became was in Spain fighting uh, the Napoleonic forces. Never directly Napoleon in Spain, but nevertheless. But the Spaniards who were trying to resist this, adopted these tactics, going into the mountains, hit and run, you know, on the move. And so the guerrilla, I think, means something like, uh, I can't remember, small soldier or something. I'm sure I'm screwing that up. But it's a, it's a, it's a term. It's a, it's a Spanish term. And we just adopted it for all this different kind of warfare. So we are fighting one kind of war with these folks, and they're fighting another kind with us. And they're probably going to be more effective pound for pound. Now, do we want to get into some sort of ground pounding, thumping through Yemen? No, probably not. But we need to at least acknowledge that these characters are going to hit and run all the time. What we need to have, the most effective thing that we can have against these guys is intelligence. We need to have assets in the area such that when we have actual intelligence, that is, intelligence that we know to be reasonably secure and correct, that we can move quickly and eliminate the enemy. That's how you fight this kind of stuff. You you don't fight it uh, from Washington, D.C. by, you know, sending out 
a missiles four or five days after the an event when everybody knows it's going to happen. Anyway, so that's that. We'll have to keep our eye on that. We are seeing a lot of what I believe is the lack of merit at the top of our military command. It's pretty obvious if you listen to what they have to say. Once again, the fact that uh, Jack Kirby, the spokesman for the Defense Department, and a lot of the spokesmen for Biden when it's beyond, you know, Jean-Pierre's uh, area of expertise, which is really pretty much everything, that he's an admiral or was an admiral. There you go. And, of course, we see Milley, who is chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and the rest of the and, – and look at Lloyd Austin. Does he inspire a lot of confidence in you when he talks about this stuff? He doesn't seem to have any plan. It's always just words. I don't expect them to lay it out. That's what I'm complaining about already is that they have a tendency to say what they're going to do. People are quite capable of getting the heck out of the way. But you get you get a pretty clear feeling that it's all just sort of on the cuff. You know, that they don't have a real strategy here. And that's pretty important. And if you don't have a, a strategic objective in mind and then a well-thought-out tactical plan to implement it, you're not accomplishing your objective and you're needlessly putting your forces in the hazard. And that's just my view. I wanted to bring something else up this week because... Uh, and this isn't on the same topic at all, but I think it's important for us. You know, this fentanyl epi- uh, epidemic that we have in the United States, uh, most of it coming from, as we know, China, and then just pushed across the border through the cartels in Mexico. And they just won't stop, and it's very disruptive to us and dangerous and heartbreaking, and, and obviously, for many people. But for the Chinese, remember the, the way they like their history, and they like to incorporate their history into responses, and it can be very, very long ago. I will refer you back to Minister for North, the North Vietnamese, Zhou Enlai, when they ask him, when there was the Paris Peace Talks, what he thought about the French Revolution, and he said it was too soon to tell. I mean, that's the kind of you know long view that they take. So a lot of what's going on, this fentanyl importation in the United States, refers back to their idea about what happened to China during the opium wars and how effective it was against them. Now, we hear that all the time, opium wars, and then when you stop about it and think, about, what do you mean opium wars? Is it wars over opium or, you know, is opium fighting each other? I mean, you know, we never get an explanation for that. But let me give you a little background, and I think you'll understand why it's important to think about this when we think about fentanyl from China now. And the, the opium wars, there's really two of them, and they happened in the 19th century. The first one here, I wrote this down, was in 1839 to 1842, and the second was 1856 to 1860. And the primary cause of these things was this trade imbalance between China and Britain. China had a high demand for silver, but a low demand for foreign goods. They didn't want a lot of the stuff that the foreigners had out there. Now, Britain and the West had a had this an imbalance, right? They had a high demand for Chinese tea, silk, and porcelain. So the British traders began smuggling opium from India into China, leading to widespread addiction, social disruption, and, of course, a lot of expenditure on opium, which caused silver to flow out of, out of China. And the government in place was, uh, was called the Qing, Q-I-N-G. 
And it was a weak governmental system at the time, and they had little control over things. And there was a lot of the warlords running things and people just making money off this, which is not hard to understand. Uh, they tried to destroy opium at one point uh, and keep it out of their country. I don't blame them. But that led to Britain responding by attacking China, or the Chinese government at that point. What they did is was all about naval superiority. They put gunboats up the Chinese rivers and attacked the coastal cities. They wanted to force China to open its ports to foreign trade, legalize the opium trade, which they realized they were now making a lot of money off of, and give territories such as Hong Kong to them. Now, you see, that, that did work, didn't it? They uh, got a 99-year lease uh, to Hong Kong and uh, managed to infiltrate China pretty heavily and really poison the population with opium. The second conflict they had, once again, was exploiting this weakness of their government. And this, the French were helpful in this, too, of course, so with the British. They had a combined naval and ground assault strategy. They wanted to expand the trade privileges, legalize the opium trade even further. And so they started attacking uh, forts along some of the rivers. They actually marched to Beijing, at the time was called uh, Peiping, I think. And uh, they actually burned the Summer Palace, where the government was located, and, of course, where the emperor was at. And, and what happened is that China didn't forget about that. They had to give up Hong Kong to Britain. They had a bunch of treaty ports. Foreigners could trade and live under their laws, not the laws of China. And it was called the Century of Humiliation for China, a period of foreign intervention and, and weakness. Now, the Chinese remember stuff like that. Not only to remember it as an insult to them, and, and it was. It's a pretty dirty pool. They remember that, but they also remember that it was highly effective. I mean, you, you get a large portion of your population drug addicted. You uh, create a huge underground network of, of criminality. It's very weakening of any government. So this fentanyl importing to them is no doubt a reflection of that. They realized this really worked against them when the West did it. They don't mind returning the favor. So when you when you see that historical context with them, you understand what's going on. I mean, at least you understand the thought behind this because historical precedent is very important in Chinese affairs. Even you have, even when you have communist government that doesn't seem anything like the Confucian kind of thing or that, they still rely heavily on the past and they do not forget insults like this. A century of humiliation. China was effectively, you know, split up into sort of areas of influence for the European powers. And one of the ways they did it, of course, as we just said, is that they imported opium, made the, made the Western powers a lot of money. Weakened China. It was a terrible situation. They're not going to forget that. They're also not going to forget that it worked. And I worry that that's what's happening now, as we're seeing that tactic employed here. And I don't think they're going to stop unless they're made to stop. I mean, why would they? What do they, they think this is humanitarian crisis? They don't care about humanitarian crisis in the United States. As far as they're concerned, we don't care about them. Why should they care about us? 
And when you get right down to it, you can see that their care of even their own citizens is substantially less than we seem to care about our own. So you mix those things together, it puts us really in a bad position. We have to figure out some way to respond and since this is essentially a trade thing, as sad as it sounds, since it involves illegal drugs, we need to figure out a way to harm them enough to where it makes them stop. In other words, they, they need money right now. China, although it's very monolithic and seems like it's Im, you know immovable, it has problems. It has a aging population. It has a lot of displaced men without any jobs. So its economy is in real trouble. And it has a lot of what you might call uh, underground, simmering unhappiness with the government. Now, it doesn't mean as much in a place like China because they have such a firm stranglehold on the population. They also keep the population from getting a whole lot of news outside the world to see how the rest of the world is living. If you were to go to China and discuss with people that are living there who have never been to the United States what the United States is like, you wouldn't recognize it. The Chinese people don't think the United States is a great place to live directly or, or anything. I mean, they're told that it is full of racial conflict and crime and, and you name it. I mean, of course, they don't want anybody to know if you're in the Chinese government that they're doing a lousy job and that capitalism is a lot better, despite all the problems we've got right now, than what they're doing, so that they keep that down. They also limit communication between individuals because you know, they know uh, what's being said on the Internet. That's why this Internet regulation that our government wants is incredibly dangerous. They're able to monitor what people say and as sophisticated artificial intelligence comes out that can be placed onto their Internet and ours, for that matter, to monitor you, what you say, filter out everything else, but look for key words and stuff. I mean, they already are doing that to some extent, uh, you know, supposedly for anti-terrorism. Think about how that works if you have something as deeply thoughtful as artificial intelligence. In other words that can take so much data in, process it, and think a little bit about it in a way that lets it come to a conclusion and do more research. That's kind of what artificial intelligence does. It's not a Google thing where you ask it a question and it goes out and searches some websites and shows you the websites. It gets data. It examines the data according to its programming. It interprets the data according to its programming. And then it will search out more data or take other actions after that, all independent of somebody telling it what to do. So once you have that on a Internet surveillance program, things get really hard to get around. But China has all of this stuff, and they control what someone in their, on their computer in China is able to access. Not only they able to shut you down if you're trying to access websites or things outside of China, but they have ways to trace you if you're tr making a bunch of those requests. Like, why are you trying to request things? Out here? So they're able to keep a lid on this a lot more than many societies would. But at some point, 
it becomes a problem. And like we said before, the Chinese response to these kind of problems in the past have been some sort of military action. Uh, I mean, when Mao was there, of course, we had we had you know there was the Great Leap Forward and <laughs> a thousand flowers and the Cultural Revolution. All these were responses to weaknesses in their economy and governmental structure, and it resulted in millions of deaths. They also take military action outside of the country. This is why everybody's been looking at Taiwan, because obviously they want Taiwan, and the fact that they're having problems internally is not something that traditionally keeps them from acting. It's something that often triggers an action. It lets them do something. It lets them show the population that uh, they're protecting their their borders. They're taking back one of their, quote, provinces. It was never a province of China, by the way. If you look at the We've talked about this. If you look at the history there, uh, that island of Taiwan never really been part of China. There certainly is a lot of people from China living on it now, but that's a little bit different. So the way they play it is mainly for our for our eyes and ears who don't really know the history. But they would love to say that they're going to take Taiwan. Taiwan is is a is a rich acquisition. Taiwan makes lots of money. It's one of the reasons the Chinese are so anxious to get a hold of Hong Kong. They'd love to have Taiwan. Now, they'd pacify it in some way, but then set business up and the money would come in. And instead of going to the people there, it'd get a little more distributed to the Chinese mainland. So the danger there is, will they step up their plans to do whatever they're going to do in Taiwan? Blockade it, invade it. There's just a, there's a number of scenarios. Then, of course, you have to factor in our election. They're much more okay with Uncle Joe being in the White House, because he's not going to do anything. I mean, our response to some of their really aggressive actions is to try and, you know, sail some of our, our fleet through the, you know, the Strait of Taiwan there. I mean, that makes them mad, but it doesn't really do anything. We're stretched so thin all over the world that uh, they feel like that, you know, they have the upper hand there. But they are much more worried about Donald Trump. They are much more, shall we say, careful. When Donald Trump was president, they would prefer that he not be president again. But if it looks like he's going to win, the question that's got to be in their mind is, do we try and do some action while Biden's in office? When we know what the pretty much know what the reaction is going to be, or to take a chance with something going on if Trump wins? Interesting question. Talk to you next week.